I am Tom Chick. You are listening to the Quarter to Three podcast, where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is about the games that matter to them. Today, we have Gordon Cameron, who posts under the name Gordon Cameron. Uh, Gordon, do you know what music that is that's playing? Yes, that's World of Warcraft. Aha! You have been busted. So that means that you have... Are, are you still playing... When was the last time you were on a guild raid? I've actually never been on a guild raid. Uh, I didn't raid when I played. Oh, so when you play these days, you just play solo? Like, do you group much? <laughs> nice try. Uh, All right. No, I haven't played since last November. I haven't played in a year. I have I have about 365 days on my chip. So. Ah, you get your one-year coin. Exactly. <laughs> so for those listening... Uh, what we have going today is a little bit different than normal. Normally, I'm meeting someone for the first time. Uh, and also, by the way, I'm I'm a little ill, so I probably sound kind of sexier than normal. Uh, so I apologize for that. I'll be swilling cough medicine as we go. But also a little something different this week is Gordon isn't just a random guy from the forum. Gordon is one of my closest friends here in Los Angeles. So rather than uh, asking Gordon questions about himself, what I propose to do today, and Gordon, this will be news to you, is tell people out there a little bit about you and have you comment on what I'm going to tell them. So the first thing, that was a little in-joke. Gordo, you have quit hardcore. <laughs> you, you were hardcore World of Warcraft, and now you're off of the stuff. That's correct? You said it's been a yes, year. Yes, I'm, I'm clean. Now, why not? Why don't you just go and like play a little bit like every night? Why don't you and me, let's go do a, uh, a Hellforge Astaroth run. Like, <laughs> um. Yeah, no, it was a wonderful thing. Uh, after Lich King came out last year, I played it for a little while, and I just discovered I wasn't enjoying it anymore. I kind of, I saw the man behind the curtain, I saw the treadmill, and I just stopped caring. So that was that was a very happy day. Now, it has it, you make it sound like it was sort of like there was an epiphany and you don't really want to play anymore. Is it difficult to not play? No, it's I, I really don't care anymore, um, it, which is different because I had tried to quit uh, prior to that, and uh, it was actually very hard to not play, and I, I kind of kept backsliding. So, um, but this time I, I'm just not really interested, which again, I'm, I'm kind of happy to say. Well, that, that makes it a lot less fun to give you grief then. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. The things that before we talk about, and by the way, the games that you want to talk about, uh, today are Ultima, but before we get to that, that series, there are four things about you that I think are pretty cool that I want to tell people about you and, and sort of ask you about. So the first thing about you when I have a question about what a piece of classical music is, like on a commercial or whatnot, I can almost invariably go to you and say, hey, Gordo, look at this YouTube uh, video. What's that music playing? And you tend to be able to identify it. Why is that? Because um, I'm a classical music nerd. Now, is it was it something like you studied at school, or did you just like, you're into classical music? No, I'm just into it. Uh, I got it from my dad. He, he's a huge classical music guy, and in fact, um, my stepmom actually works as a publicist in classical music in New York, so they're kind of plugged into that world, and um, around about when I went to college, I started getting into it myself, just buying CDs and listening to it and, uh, and studying piano, so uh, so yeah, it's just a hobby. Well, now that's surprising to me, because that sounds like fairly late in life, like like not until college, like you didn't grow up being I, into classical music? I grew up kind of hearing it in the background, you know, my dad would always sort of play it, and I'd hear the music wafting out of his study and, and so forth, but um, I didn't really start to pursue it myself until I was about 17. Right. Uh, the other thing about you, similar to classical music, uh, I just want to warn everyone listening, if you add Gordo to your Netflix 
friends queue. But here's my cat, by the way. Sorry. If you add Gordo to your Netflix queue, you're, you're just going to get a bunch of like crappy, like classic movies from the forties, like Rafifi and the 400 blows and stuff like that. You Gordo only like movies that were made before 1960. Is that true or false? That's false, but I do have a fondness for them. Uh, and where does that come from? Um, I'm a film student, and in order to be a film student, you also have to be a film snob. And part of how you define <laughs> yourself as a film snob is forcing yourself to watch old French black and white movies with subtitles. But you actually like that stuff. Like you, When I get stuff like that from my Netflix queue, it sort of sits there and clogs up the queue for a while. But you really are into those things. I am, and I really don't think someone who spent a significant amount of his life studying ancient Hebrew... <laughs> has, has a leg to stand on when it comes to you know critiquing my uh, liking a forty year old French movie. The, the funny thing is though, Gordo, like I one of the last things I want to do now is read the Old Testament. I, I sort of feel like like that's what I studied in school, and when I didn't make that like a sort of a, a life choice for a career or whatnot, like I have no desire to revisit it. And I would think as a film student, I guess I kind of admire that that, that you still even after studying film. You didn't sort of lose your your love for that aspect of it. You can still appreciate classical film. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously I, I, my career has kind of taken a left turn. And even though I worked in film for many years, I don't anymore. But I still kind of define myself as a film guy and a film snob and a film nerd and all that stuff. And, and you know, you kind of got to walk the walk, right? So <laughs> i, I got to make sure I've seen more Fellini movies than anybody else around me. It's very important. Nice. Very good. Uh, by the way, have you seen a trailer for a movie called Nine? This, this music yes, by Rob. Yeah, yeah which, which is a remake or sort of a musical reimagining of Fellini's Eight and a Half. Um, oh, are you serious? Oh, yeah. I had no idea. That totally makes sense now. Because yeah, yeah. I was I watching the trailer, and the trailer is Daniel Day-Lewis playing Marcello Mastrantonio playing <laughs> Federico Fellini. I was yes. like, holy cats, yeah. I've got to see that movie. Yeah. Ah, I, I had no idea. Well, in that case, I'm totally psyched. Let's go see Nine <laughs> when it comes out. Uh, you know, I, I disapprove just in general principle with the idea of remaking Eight and a Half, especially if it's Rob Marshall doing it, but eh, it might be interesting. But yeah, what about remaking it as like this like big gay musical? Kind of <laughs> I mean, that, that's at least a twist. Uh, it's it's not going to be some sort of like Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho at the very least. At least, at least it's a different take on it. Um, and, and speaking of old movies, by the way, or movies about old movies, I, I highly recommend Me and Orson Welles, uh, which features a fantastic performance by Chris McKay. Basically, channels Orson Welles. It's like watching the real guy on screen. And this this is an art house thing that just opened, right? Yeah, it's a Richard Linklater movie, though. So oh, yeah. holy cow! Wow. Okay, good, good. It's only playing, I think, like at the Landmark, though, so it's a pretty limited release. Okay, well, it's uh, you know, and that's for one for Netflix then. Uh, <laughs> all right, so let me see. That's two things about you down. Two more to go. This next one uh, is kind of gay, and I wouldn't normally say this to you, uh, but because it's a podcast and in front of other people. I just want to point out, you're like a dude who's in pretty good shape. Like, I, you went running once with me and Dingus, and I, I normally do my three miles, and then, boy, I'm ready to quit. When you went running with us at three miles, you know, when we got back to the house, you were just as sprightly as ever. Your arms are pretty cut. Like, like you, you're an athletic fellow. Uh, is that something new, or is that something you've always done? Oh, and you're a tennis player, too. Yes, I am a tennis player. Not, not a very good one, but club level. But you've got for for a dork because that's another thing. You're totally a dork. I mean, you're totally as big dork. a dork as anyone I know. Yes, I'm also the whitest guy in the world, by the way. You're totally white. I'll bet you can't dance for for shit. I mean, you probably got I, no I, I'm the worst dancer in the world. And yeah. I'm, yeah, 
but you're like an athletic dude. So for for a dork, you've got this weird thing where you're really athletic. Where did that come from? Well, I think part of it is that dorks, they 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 have that much more disadvantage when it comes to picking up chicks. So ah. you have to find every asset that you can find. <laughs> so if, you know, if, if a little bit of weightlifting or a little bit of jogging will help, then why not do it? You know. Now, how hardcore are you? Yeah, I go to the gym maybe four days a week. Okay. Okay. You know, nothing too hardcore. I play tennis when I can, but unfortunately, I don't seem to have a lot of people who are willing to play tennis with me right now. So that's that that fluctuates depending on who I can find. The funny thing is, Gordo, anytime you play tennis, I can tell because you have a sun sunburn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I never bring enough sun sunscreen. <laughs> that's part of being a really white dude. Is anytime you've been out long enough to get in a game of tennis, you get a little sunburn. So. That's true. That's true. Okay, and then finally to bring this back around to how much of a dork you are. Kind of like with classical music, uh, if I have a question about the original Star Trek, you're the go-to guy. Because, unlike like a lot of Star Trek fans, and I think you're definitely a Star Trek fan, you have this really uh, sort of erudite appreciation of it. You, you can talk analytically about Star Trek. You have both this affection and this hardcore analytical perspective towards it. Um, well. Keep in mind, I mean, I, I'm a film student, and I, I'm a, I was a script reader for many years, so I, I know how to break down stories and see how they're written and stuff. And I, th- I think there's a lot of very admirable writing uh, in, in Star Trek, um, including the old Star Trek, which people, they all kind of laugh at it as being cheesy, but I, I think it's got a sort of dramatic bite to it that that, that is still pretty strong. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I enjoyed it on that level. But um, I definitely kind of geeked out on it at first as a kid, you know, memorized all the episodes and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Now, could you say, uh, and I, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, but as someone who, I'm, I'm not into Star Trek at all, it never really works for me, and I've tried it, but if you were to tell somebody, like, the original series, here are the, the three best episodes, here's what you want to watch to appreciate the best of the original Star Trek, could you, like, pick out, like, a few episodes that really... Yes, I can, I can tell you right now what the three best episodes are. If okay. you watch these three episodes and you don't like them, then don't bother because you won't like Star Trek. Awesome, okay, I'm going to write these down, go. Okay, the first one is Amok Time. Oh, the A-M-O-K, right? Yeah. right? That's okay. the one where Spock, uh, Spock tries to get married. Isn't that kind of a spoiler? Oh, I'm sorry. You're the spoiler guy. Yeah. <laughs> you can oh, actually you can give me broad spoilers. That's okay. Isn't there like a 45-year statute of limitation on spoilers? You know what? I think TV, you can't spoil TV. I'm okay with that. <laughs> so, oh, Amok by the way, I'm, I'm finally starting to watch Lost, so we'll have to... Oh, why are you doing that? Don't I do know, that, it's, Gordo. It's, it's free on Netflix Instant View. I can't help myself. Well, you're getting what you pay for. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the second episode is the Doomsday Machine, which might be the best episode of Star Trek ever ever made. Ah, I like the name of it, by the way. Yeah, okay. it makes and, me think of Doctor Strangelove. Well, it's a Cold War allegory, actually, so it's got some some parallels there. Okay, very cool. All right. And the third one is Mirror Mirror, which is a classic episode with the anti Spock or Mirror Spock with a beard. So yeah. now, doesn't William Shatner ruin all of these? I will, to my dying breath, defend William Shatner's chops as an actor. No um, kidding. Okay. I would say yes. He plays it big. He overacts. He, he he chews the scenery. So does Kenneth Branagh on Hamlet. I don't think that's inherently the same thing as bad acting. I think he, it's kind of an older style, but I think he's very charming and very athletic and handsome and has tremendous presence. So I I don't agree that Shatner's a bad actor. See that right there, Gordo, is exactly why you're the guy I think who needs to be front and center getting guys like me to give Star Trek a chance. Well, uh, so finally, uh, I don't know if this is an apocryphal story. You've mentioned it before, but you claim that you fractured a bone in your hand or something because you were like so pissed off at a post on quarter to three. 
Yes, that's uh, correct. I broke my hand because of quarter to three. Well, you know what the question, when you say something like this, you know what the logical question on everybody's mind is, right? What what did I read that caused me to break my hand? Exactly. Who did it and what yeah. did they say? Do you remember? So, the sad thing is I don't remember. I think it might have been something that Koontz wrote, though. Oh. Um, okay. I remember... I'm not sure. I remember I, I, at one point I wrote something and Kuntz made a, some kind of you know very disparaging comment about it, and that really angered me. But I don't remember if that was the time I broke my hand. Uh, unfortunately, I don't remember the specific post. And uh, is that something that uh, over time, like, was that a one-time thing, or do you routinely get livid at things you read <laughs> on quarter to three? Um, I, I used to take things to heart a little more on message boards, <laughs> uh, but I, I still – I mean, anyone who is – who has actually read my posts knows I, I can, get, can get pretty annoyed. And, and uh, you know, I, 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 I fly off the handle a little bit, uh, which is why nowadays I um, I tend to not engage as deeply in threads as I used to. I, I don't really have the temperament to just constantly do the back and forth with someone who, uh, who's kind of being snarky. So um, I'll kind of just sort of drop into threads and say right. something and then go away again. <laughs> it's kind of my, my current MO, which uh, isn't, isn't quite as courageous as those who are willing to just, just take all comers. But... Uh, you know, I, I don't want to break my hand again, so. <laughs> For your own health. Well, you know, Gordo, I, I mean, there's something to that. Like, I think that's part of interacting on the Internet and certainly with any community is it's really important to sort of know which posts to ignore. Uh, and that can be really hard. But once you realize that the posts that that a lot of the posts that you want to react strongly to are only written to get you to react, that the moment you react and the moment that it bothers you and you feel about them, that other person has sort of succeeded in, right, in breaking up factor. the discussion. Right, right. It's the troll factor. Uh, so I, I totally understand your approach, and I'm, I'm the same way, uh, and I know how tough that can be. Um, well, the reason you uh, are here today, uh, you want to talk about the Ultima games. So the first question is, why do you want to talk about a, what is this, 30 years old? Why, why do you want to talk Gosh. about Ultima? Yeah, games? Ultima 1 will be 30 years old next year. That's oh, you know what? I was being facetious. Is that really true? 30 it's years? It's literally true. It came out in 1980. Wow. Wow. Okay, well, why do you want to talk about these Ultima games? Um, well, Deathlock will back me up on this, by the way. Right. Um, they are kind of the urtext of computer role-playing games. They're, they're where it began. You know, I mean, there there was Rogue and there were things before it, but to me, the Ultimas kind of put it all together. And when you look at especially the first five Ultimas, which is probably not the ones that most people nowadays are familiar with. I think most people tend to talk more about Ultima 7 right. as being the high-water mark. And, and I'm, I'm kind of in a different boat because I didn't play Ultima 7 until years later as a retro gaming thing. Um, I didn't have a PC when it came out. I was in college with an old Commodore Amiga, so I couldn't play it, much to my regret. Um, so the Ultimas that really made an impact on me were the earlier ones from the 1980s. And when you think of Richard Garriott, you know, kind of defining the genre uh, game by game and iterating each time and improving the engine and improving the, the writing and improving the complexity again and again and again, it's an incredible streak. And the guy was what? He was like 20 when he started, you know, and he was in his 20s and he was writing most of these things. And, and the first few, I think up to Ultima 4, he was pretty much just coding them himself. Uh, it's an astounding achievement. I mean, people to this day, you know, they, they'll say, well, why why do we care about Richard Garriott? You know, Tabula Raza was a flop, and he goes up into space, and he seems to be this kind of eccentric and bizarre character that doesn't seem worthy of our respect. But if you were there watching the, the CRPG genre be created, you know, in the 1980s, I mean, I don't think anyone who, who remembers that will ever lose their respect for Garriott, because, I mean, he's a huge, huge name. He's right up there alongside... Will Wright, Sid Meier, Shigeru Miyamoto. I mean, he deserves to stand alongside those guys. 
I guess there is this sense that it's sort of like a, a kids these days kind of thing. Like yeah, people who bit. weren't playing games back then just see the guy with the cape going into space and whatnot, and they don't really yeah. realize what his contribution was. Yeah, uh, and get off my lawn, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Gordo. We say you, you kids get off of our lawns. Uh, so what, would you say that he sort of introduced the idea of narratives to computer RPGs? Were there many computer RPGs before then or around that time that had narratives? That's an interesting question. Um, so if you look at something like Rogue, you know, it didn't really have a narrative. Right. It was just, you know, a random dungeon and you go in and how far in can you go. Um, maybe the Wizardries. I didn't play the Wizardries, so I don't really know what kind of story they had. Um, I think Garriott made a couple of important sort of steps forward or, or a couple of interesting innovations. Um, Let, let's talk about those because I want to know... What what are the hallmarks of an Ultima game? Like, what were the Ultima games doing mm-hmm. back then that Bard's Tale and Wizardry and Heroes of Might and Magic or Might and Magic yeah. weren't doing? So let me set the stage a little bit, though. First okay. off, what, what you have to understand is uh, Garrett was not working in a vacuum. The CRPG genre in the mid nineteen eighties was incredibly fertile. There was so much cool stuff coming out. There were games that were ripping each other off and that were cloning each other and that were learning from each other. You know, there's a great game called Questron which came out. Uh, yeah. after Ultima 2, and I believe Garrett actually, there was some legal issue that he, he felt that they kind of ripped off his engine and, and they came to some kind of a, a licensing agreement with him about it. And it was clearly an Ultima clone, but it did things that the Ultimas didn't do, and so there was a lot of kind of back and forth, and you had SSI was doing incredible stuff in the 80s. They had the fantasy series. and they had oh, Wizard's the, Crown, wasn't Wizard's that? Crown, yeah. And there was also an amazing game called The Magic Candle, which came out in the late 80s by a guy named Ali Adebeck. Um so it was it was an amazing time, you know. You obviously had the Wizardries and the Bard's Tale. There were there were just all these games that were kind of ripping off each other and, and building on each other, and you know, doing interesting things. The Ultimas were always the, they were like the Ferrari, you know. They were the high class one, you know. I mean, and it, it even started. You just walk into the store and you see the newest Ultima in the big glossy box, and you knew there was a cloth map in there, and and the writing was so literate, and and they had these great paintings on the cover. It was the classiest of all the series, just from the presentation on up. And Garriott was just always adding new things. Each time he made a new game, he would never rest on his laurels, you know. Um, so with Ultima 1, uh, that's kind of just kind of starting up everything, get, getting the basic idea of this. Um, he initially, it, it, the, 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 um, the game that, that predated Ultima 1 was a Calibith, which I think was primarily a dungeon crawl. It was kind of like a wizardry type thing. You're in these little 3D, you know, wireframe dungeons and you fight monsters. And then Ultima, he adds the sort of overworld to that, and he adds the towns and the quests and all these things. And it gives it, starts to give it kind of a shape and a, a context for what you're doing. And then Ultima 2, he expands the scope. Suddenly, it's like he went and watched Time Bandits, and now he has to have uh, time portals. And, and, and there's the future, and there's the past, and there's the time of legends. and there's the, I mean, actually, Terry Gilliam could sue him for that game. <laughs> he ripped off Time Bandits in all sorts of ways. But you get the sense that he's just trying out all this cool stuff, you know, all these... Uh, these different story elements, and then in Ultima 3 he starts to really refine it and he focuses just straight on straightforward fantasy, Dungeons Dragons style fantasy, and it's got a much tighter focus and a much smaller world map and um, so I, I think um, an example of some of the sort of innovations that you see though are like um, and how he began to bring narrative techniques into, into these video games, you can see it for one thing in, uh, in Ultima 3, which is my personal favorite of the series, it's not the best objectively I think it's hard to, you know, even say what is sure. ridiculous. They're all old games. They're all extremely dated, and they all have been infinitely surpassed, you know, design-wise by modern games. But 
the one that had the biggest impact to me was Ultimate 3, and it was, um, there were just these wonderful things he did in it within the context of a very small amount of code. I mean, the whole, the whole thing was, what, 512K or something, you know, and when you think about it, that's like the size of one of the textures on a Night Elf, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of interesting what he was able to do with that. Um, but he would, he, there were actually very specific storytelling techniques that you could see in Ultima 3, which, as a, stu- a student of screenwriting, uh, you know, I can kind of point out, like, um, he would set things up. I mean, the whole the whole way the game is played is you, you walk into various towns, and, you know, you, you have to talk to the townsfolk, and they give you the clues. Of course, in those days, there wasn't anything like that it was formally a quest. There was no coding around the concept of a quest. You know, it, you had to do it yourself. If the townsfolk said, go here, you just had to go. There was no in-game track to tell you whether or not you had completed that quest. But what you would get would be um, little hints that would be dropped here and there. Like, you, you'd see some wizard standing, you know, like behind the tree where you could barely see him, and he would say something like, I've been beyond the whirlpool. And, you know, oh, what does that mean? I don't know. But you see this whirlpool floating around in the ocean, and it'll, it'll suck the ships down. And you begin to realize, well, maybe there's something. You have to go through that whirlpool and, and, and come out to the other end. And, in fact, I, can I give spoilers about oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I would love for you to. Yes. yes. So if you, if you go down that whirlpool while you're riding a ship it takes you to the, the land of Ambrosia, which is this whole new continent where you have to find you know, these, these, these hidden shrines that will increase your stats. Um, so he would plant these little clues in the dialogue of the townsfolk very deftly and very, you know, it, with a very storyteller-like quality. But to me, the most amazing thing about Ultima 3, the most amazing narrative brushstroke is, uh, to, to give a little bit of backstory to it, there's a whole concept called moon gates in the Ultimas, and these are little portals that appear at various points on the map, and you go into the moon gate, and it teleports you somewhere else in the game world. And this is a system that I think persisted up right on through Ultima Online. Um, and what uh, what the moon gates did in Ultima 3, they would take you to various kind of random spots around the um, around the map, and one of the spots that you could teleport to if you went into the right moon gate at the right time of, you know, the month or whatever, because actually, he actually had the little moon cycles, you know, going on uh, in the game, which, again, I mean, what other video game in 1983 would right. actually have lunar cycles in it, you know? I mean, that's the kind of weird stuff he was doing. And if you go into the right moon gate, you come out on this one little square of land that is right next to the big evil castle, the castle of Exodus, the final spot that you have to get to in order to beat the game. But you can't get to it from there. You're, you're teleported to this spot that's blocked by water. So you can see the castle, you can <laughs> see your final goal, but you can't get to it. And the anticipation that that created was incredible. I remember as a kid, I was staring over my brother's shoulder as he was playing it, and he wandered into this random moon gate. Suddenly, there it is, and you see the castle of Exodus, and it's surrounded by lava, and you know this is the final goal, but you can't get there yet. And that's, you know, that's foreshadowing. That's a very sophisticated narrative technique that builds your anticipation and makes you want to get to the end. And he's doing this in this little, you know, 8-bit game, you know, with, with tile graphics. I mean, to me, that, that's amazing. That's a masterstroke, you know. Now, what were, the, what were the Ultima games about? Could you say in, in like, did they have themes or, or sort of an overarching storyline? Or were they sort of generic, go kill the evil guy in the Castle Exodus? Yeah, so he began with generic kill, kill foozle plots. Um, Fuzel, I guess, being the term that Scorpia came up with uh, way back. Is that when. true? That's a Scorpia thing. I think it is. She oh. certainly used it. I don't know if she invented it. Okay. But so yeah, um, Ultima One, Ultima Two, Ultima Three all had standard kill Fuzel plots. Um, in the first one, you have to kill this wizard. Come on, 
Dane, and then in the second one you kill her apprentice Minax, his apprentice Minax. In the third one, Ultima Three, you kill Exodus, which is this mysterious spawn of both Mondane and Minax. And the big spoiler, the big surprise is Exodus is actually a computer. What? Wait a minute. Exodus is a computer. When you get to the very end, you fight your way through the castle, you see a computer sitting there, and you have to insert these cards into it to destroy it. Wait a minute. Oh, my God. Is, is that, I, I hear that, and I'm, I guess maybe back then that was mind-blowing. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, that, 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 that's actually an example of not a narrative masterstroke. That's okay. That's <laughs> a slightly cheesy twist. But, yeah, that, that was the big, the big gimmick. And, and that was actually one of the interesting things about the Ultimas is the first Ultimas actually incorporated some very heavy sci-fi elements. Um, there was a whole weird subplot in Ultima 1 where you have to become a space ace. You actually, like, learn how to fly a spaceship and you <laughs> shoot down. Seriously, you, there was this whole little mini space action game here where you have to shoot down TIE fighter-type things. And, you know, and and in Ultima 2, again, there was a lot of science fiction. It had the whole Time Bandits thing, and you went to the future, and you could get a rocket ship, and you could go to other planets. I mean, it was crazy stuff. By Ultima 3, he was firmly coming down more into traditional fantasy, but he uh, he still maintained a few vestiges of sci-fi, and one of them was the, the revelation that Exodus is actually a computer. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm still traumatized by having tried to play Barrier Peaks and Dungeons and Dragons. So. <laughs> I always think it's kind of interesting when you mix genres like that. I mean, it, you can do it well and you can do it badly. You know? right. I don't think that was the greatest thing about Ultima 3 was that twist. But um, So the first three Ultimas were Kill Foozle games, and right. then Ultima 4 is the big, you know, epochal, earth-shattering change, which got a lot of press at the time, and people to this day consider Ultima 4 to be this major kind of milestone because it introduced the whole concept of the virtues and the um, the idea that you're going on a quest, uh, the quest of the Avatar. You're going on this quest of self-perfection, and for the first time, you actually have to behave in certain ways, and the game tracks your morality. So um, if you run away from a battle, you lose valor points, and if you kill an innocent, I think you lose honor points, and if you steal from a, a shopkeeper, you lose honesty points and, and, and so forth. Um, so that whole conception of the virtues, and he, he created a very elaborate structure around it where there was the eight virtues and there were the three principles that intermingled to create the eight virtues. And I believe I read in an interview somewhere that it was based on the prophet by Khalil Gibran and, and various other kind of, you know, new agey kind of things. <laughs> but um, so that whole concept of the virtues begins with Ultima Four that did not exist up to that point. And I think all of the the subsequent Ultimas incorporated those in some way. Uh, Ultima Five shows you what happens when the virtues become twisted by sort of an evil dictator who takes over Britannia. Ultima Six I actually played very little of. It had this whole thing with the gargoyles, and 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 um, I actually don't know exactly how he, he incorporated it there. And then Ultima Seven, there is a sort of evil secret society called the Brotherhood. Um, that again, I, I think that, I don't know if they're presented as an opposition to the virtues or whatever, but. Pretty much all of the Ultimas from Ultima 4 onward in some way incorporated this theme of becoming an avatar, becoming an embodiment of virtue and truth and honesty and all that sort of thing. And that was, again, um, it was a major step forward conceptually in 1985 when Ultima 4 came out. I mean, every other CRPG I'm aware of up to that point, as good as they may have been, and some of them were good, they were basically kill-foozle games. You know, you go and you, you, um, you, you have to... Uh, fight the dragon or the wizard or whatever. So they, they weren't getting into morality. So in that sense, that was, a, that was a significant kind of innovation. I actually, I'm a little bit, I'm not entirely on board with some people's admiration of Ultima 4 just because um, I don't think the incorporation of morality actually resulted in very many interesting gameplay results in that case. I think it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting first try, mm -hmm. but 
you really could only be one way. You know, you, I mean, even Bioware games nowadays let you take two paths. In Ultima 4, you, you had to follow one specific path to become the Avatar, so you didn't have a lot of, you know, there wasn't a lot of um, different options you could take. I mean, you couldn't choose to play as an evil character. You couldn't choose to play as a morally ambiguous character. You simply had to complete all of the sort of Avatar goals or you wouldn't win the game. And the actual gameplay was actually, 90% of it was still the standard, you know, kill monsters, dungeon crawl kind of a thing. So as much as I admire the innovation of it, I, I actually don't think gameplay-wise Ultima 4, you know, was that different than, than most of the sort of standard CRPGs of the day on that level. Now, how adult would you say the storylines were? And I ask because having played things recently like... Uh, you know, Fallout or Dragon Age, Fallout Three or, or Dragon Age, um, or even Oblivion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're they're very dark. Maybe I should use the word dark instead. But they're very dark themes in these games, uh, and they're very colored. I think by uh, well, I, I don't want to get like post nine eleven or anything like that. But there there there's a lot more of a sort of a cynical take on what the world is and how things mm-hmm. can go wrong and right. the challenges we face in fighting evil. That it's not white hat black hat anymore. Uh, right. Is is any of that stuff in the Ultima games, or does it seem like it's sort of an earlier, in a way, more naive take on good yeah. evil? So I can't speak too much to the later Ultimas, particularly the six and seven, which I think are more sophisticated. Um, I think that you know, obviously, on the level of sort of the novelistic aspects of game writing, the characterizations and things like that, nothing in any of the Ultimas I've played even comes remotely close to to something like a, a Vampire Bloodlines or a Planescape Torment or. Or maybe a Dragon Age. I haven't played Dragon Age much yet. But, you know, those games, they have just thousands and thousands of lines of text and dialogue, and they have many more characters that are written out as characters. And the middle Ultimas did not have that. Um, what they did have was kind of cool, conceptual, you know, things in them. The, um, like uh, Ultima Five addresses the question of what happens when morality sort of becomes twisted. You have uh, the character of Blackthorn is the, uh, the evil dictator of Britannia, who takes the virtues and he takes them too far. So he, he forces, you know, all the townsfolk to, you know, in, instead of the idea that, you know, you should be honest, he has an edict saying if you steal from someone, you know, you'll be put in jail or you'll be executed or your hand will be cut off. So that was based on the theme of um, how good morals can be twisted into sort of a dictatorship or something like that. So, I mean, I think that's not too naive. I think it's fairly sophisticated. I, I think Ultima 6 and 7 got further. Um, Ultima 6, uh, again, I, having played it so little, I really can't speak to it with much detail, but I think there's something to do with um, you, you believe that you're fighting these evil gargoyles, and it turns out that the gargoyles actually have a perfectly good reason to be doing what they're doing, and oh. so you, in a weird sort of way, you're the antagonist, and you discover that at some point. And Ultima f- 7, with the concept of the Brotherhood, I think um, explores sort of this this crazy cult that that manipulates people in it. So, so yeah, I mean, there were there were some interesting ideas. It was definitely more sophisticated than sort of straight good versus evil. You know, here's the quest, save the kingdom, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the extent, certain, certainly through Ultima Five, there was very little of the kind of sophisticated character writing that you would take for granted in a good Troika game or a good Bioware right. game now. Um, I can't speak quite so much to 6 and 7. I do think they, they took that further. Now, you are always in the Ultima games. Were you were you Lord British, or Lord British was someone else in the game? No, Lord British was sort of your benefactor. He was, okay. generally, the, he was generally the king. He was, you know, you'd go to the castle, and he'd be the dude there who would help you out. And, and, and he was a handy guy to have around. He'd, you know, he'd, um, if you were wounded, you would go talk to him, and he'd heal you up. 
Um, and in Ultima 3, he was the guy you had to talk to if you wanted to go up a level. Every time you gained enough experience, you had to actually go talk to him before you'd be able to have more hit points. Or whatever. Well, that, that gets to what I want to ask about then. So your character was always... Like, you couldn't, like, name your character and pick a class. It wasn't like... Like, you were always the same dude, right? Uh, Not really. It's ah, okay. Okay. So through Ultima 3, it was very standard D&D style. You did name your character, you picked your class, you rolled your stats. It was just like, you know, any other CRPG. Um, there was nothing special about your guy. In Ultima 3, you weren't really anyone. You had four characters that you controlled. That was oh. just your party. And it was like playing, I don't know, the Dark Spire or something. You, know, you just had four dudes. Um, starting in Ultima 4, you are the Avatar. Uh, and, however, you could still name your character. Certainly in Ultima 4 and 5, you could name your character. Um, I don't remember after that whether you could or not. Uh, I'm sure someone else who's played 6 and 7 more, more length could, could easily answer that but you um, the other thing that Ultima 4 innovated was this kind of unusual character creation system wherein oh right I vaguely remember yeah, this the, the thing with the, the tarot cards and the gypsy yeah yeah so the idea being that you would define yourself by these ethical choices that you would make um, and all it was is was a simple little algorithm and that based on what you did it would tell you what class you were now, this is it's actually a very intricate kind of little mythology created for, for, for Britannia and all that. Is, is um, Each class is associated with a virtue. So if you're honor, then you're a paladin. And if you're honesty, then you're a mage. If you're valor, you're a fighter. If you're compassion, you're a bard. If you're sacrifice, you're a tinker. I don't know why, but I guess you're <laughs> out of ideas at that point. If you're, if you're spirituality, you're a, ma- you're a ranger. Um, oh, and you really get screwed if you're humility, because then you become a shepherd, and shepherds suck. So... <laughs> We realized this playing Ultima 4, you kind of have to game the system a little bit, because it, it, it was a really amazing way to begin the game at the time. Depending on what answers you gave to those questions, you know, uh, do you choose to do the honest thing, or do you choose to do the brave thing, you know, and so forth, you get like five or six or seven iterations of those questions, and it, it basically winnows you down into a choice between the two virtues, and then you choose the final virtue. And based on what your final choice is, honesty or honor or whatever, you become that class and you start out in the town that is representative of that virtue. So Starting area. Yes, you, your starting area varies depending on how you answer those questions in Ultima 4. Uh, and so if you start as um, a paladin, you're kind of, you're styling because you, <laughs> paladin is a very strong class. He can wear plate mail armor. He has little magic. He, you know, I think he, he has good stats for, for melee combat. And you start intrinsic, which is a very nice big town right in the middle of the mainland and right on the it's easy to get to the castle of Lord British from there, and you know you're, you're doing great. If, on the other hand, you choose humility, you are so screwed. <laughs> you start as a shepherd, which is a lousy, weak class, doesn't do very good melee. I don't think it has as many magic points. You know, can't even use any weapons. I think you can use like a sling and a staff or something. This is a terrible class. And and on top of that, you start in the town of Magincia, which is destroyed. You start <laughs> on this tiny little island in the middle of nowhere with a town that has nothing in it. And there's swamp all around you, and it's very easy to step into the swamp and get sick and die. So you very quickly realize that you don't want to start as a shepherd. So you, you learn to game the system when you're rolling a character in Ultimate form. Well, now I want to ask you, Gordo, did you, when you, do you remember sitting down to play? Do you remember how you found that out? Was it through trying over and over again or reading um, in a game magazine? Because this was before yeah. the Internet. Yes, so this was before, was before yeah. you could go online and talk to other people playing the same game. Yeah. Your experience was going to be much more limited, your sort of sphere of awareness yeah. of the game. Well, the interesting sort of, there's an interesting laboratory for it in my case, because I had three other brothers, and we all liked these games, and we all played them, and, ah. and we all kind of played them alongside each other, so we would learn from each other's experiences, and kind of peer over each other's shoulders, and, and try to see who could win it first. 
And so, um, you know, we, we very quickly kind of figured out how things worked. Uh, right. I, I actually remember Ultima 4, when Ultima 4 came out, Christmas 1985, it was a huge deal. I mean, we were dying to play this game. We had been dying to play it for a whole year. And, uh, you know, we got it for Christmas, and I remember being at Christmas dinner and so badly wanting to just leave so I could play Ultima 4. I just did not want to be at the table. Um, and, you know, we booted it up on the Commodore 64. It was so exciting. And, and, and the first guy, my, my brother Jimmy, I think, was the first one who started playing it. And we were kind of peering over his shoulder, and he rolled a character, and he happened to choose spirituality, and he ended up being a ranger, which was a little tricky because you start off on an island. And you're like, well, what the hell? We're on an island. How do we get off? You know? Um, and there's one town, Scarbray, which is a town, the name of which anyone who plays Ultimas will be familiar with. And But what you ultimately discover is that there's a moon gate on that island, and you can step into the moon gate to get onto the mainland. Um, so yeah, we would kind of compare notes, my brothers and I. We would say, you know, oh, well, I, try, I got this class. And, and it's pretty easy to realize that how the character creation system works. Right. It's actually quite simple. Now, what was that like, being one of four brothers, all of whom wanted to play the game? Did you only have the one Commodore 64 in the house? We may have had two by that point. My mom bought okay. one, bought a second one. We had either one or two, but yeah, there was. We 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 definitely fought over who got to have a computer from time to time. And um, do you remember? You mentioned it earlier seeing one of your brothers seeing Castle Exodus. Do you remember who finished first? Like, does one of you get bragging rights for having finished the game first? Yeah, Jimmy won Ultima Three first, and um, we were a little annoyed with him too because like the first time. And we were, Ultimate 3 specifically, we, we kind of had this weird thing where we all had our characters on the same sort of scenario disc, and you could have, like, up to 20 characters on the same disc, and we would keep on reforming the party with whichever character we wanted. So it was like we were all playing on the same disc. Okay. Um, and he, we, we, like, one of us got to cast Lex disc, and it was like, wow, look at that, you know, and, and this is going to be really tough. We're never going to make it. We're thinking, wow, yeah, we might have to roll new characters, and we might have to try different class combinations. It's going to be, oh, man, this could take a while. We're kind of excited, contemplating how much of a challenge it was going to be. And then, like, a few hours later, Jimmy's like, oh, I won. <laughs> you know, we, were all, we were all a little bit annoyed about that. Um, but the, the, speaking of which, by the way, one of the other cool things about Ultima 3 was that it actually had a persistent um, exterior world, which is to say that objects that you left on the exterior world would stay there. Uh, particularly treasure chests. If you killed a monster, he would drop a big treasure chest that would take up one tile, you know, and this was a pretty small map. I mean, <laughs> there weren't that many tiles in it, actually. The, the, over, the Overland world map in Ultima 3 was quite small. And we got kind of cute with it. We um, we would kill monsters in such a way that they would drop chests in exactly the right spot, so we would, like, draw a line with those chests. And we actually created a road from one town to another just by outlining it with treasure chests. <laughs> and since the monsters couldn't, you know, walk over the treasure chest that was like provided safe passage from one town to the next that is awesome yeah it was really neat and it was also there was a thing that you could do in, in the ultimate called peering at a gem and you would use a magical gem that would create a map of the overland for you it would show you the entire continent and when you had this little road of chests if you peered at a gem you would actually see the road of chests on the map you know, and that kind of blew my mind at the time. It was like that is beautiful, Gardo. It was the yeah. The game was like you were actually impacting the game world, and the game recognized that, and and that was just really cool. Well, let me ask you. So, there's three things that I'm wondering if you would agree that that the Ultima games sort of started or spawned, and one of them is this idea of a living world with emergent properties. I mean, when everybody's used to GTA now, GTA three. Mm-hmm. Uh, did this sort of an oblivion? I think in RPGs, like, yeah. is this weren't wasn't there at some point in Ultima where there was like, you mentioned the lunar cycles before, but didn't mm-hmm. at some point they have like a day-night cycle yes. with shopkeepers keeping a schedule? Yes. So yes. that's yeah. a, that's a thing that Ultima started? 
that begins with Ultima 5. Ultima 5 introduces the day-night cycle. It introduces NPC scheduling. Everybody gets up. They go to bed. They sit down at their table. They eat dinner. Um, the shopkeepers, you know, they get up and they go to their store. And they, I mean, all they do is they walk back and forth in front of the counter. They're not actually doing anything, of course. They're just little tiles. But um, this is, the, to my knowledge, this is the first game of any kind that had that kind of um, that kind of living world component. I may be wrong about that. You know, I haven't played every game. Uh, and if anything, you might have seen it in strategy games rather than other RPGs. Certainly, it's the first RPG I ever encountered in which the NPCs were more than just sort of information kiosks that were just right. kind of standing there, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was absolutely an astounding leap forward. I, I think people always talk about what 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 Gary had achieved between Ultima three and Ultima four, but he never gets credit for what he achieved between Ultima four and Ultima five. Ultima five was such a leap forward on so many levels. I mean, not only did he add all this NPC scheduling stuff and the day-night cycle, all of which, by the way, you know, after the, the mid-90s, I think, kind of fell by the wayside for many years, and it wasn't until Gothic and then Oblivion that it kind ah. of... Um, and, and I was, all that time, I was kind of angry that it had gone away. Um, and he also, uh, in Ultima 5, he, he, he created, there was almost almost a physics engine it was incorporated into this into the game at this point. You could push objects around. You could solve puzzles in ways that were not necessarily designed. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. One of my favorite gaming moments of all time was in Ultima 5. There was an object that you need to get at the top of this castle that's guarded by this really badass gargoyle. And you don't want to fight this gargoyle. If, 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 he, if he gets adjacent to you, you will go into combat mode with this gargoyle and he will kick your ass. So the question is, how do you get around him? And there's a, there's a legitimate way to do it, and the legitimate way is you're supposed to own a device called the Badge of Blackthorn. And if you have the Badge of Blackthorn, the, the gargoyle doesn't bother you. When I played the game, I had no idea there was such a thing as a Badge of Blackthorn. <laughs> I, I hadn't the foggiest idea that it even existed. So I couldn't use that to solve this problem. I had to think of another way. And what I did was I used a, a magic carpet, which is just one of the little vehicles uh, that you had in Ultima Five, and I led this gargoyle all the way around the ramparts of the castle, and I was going a little bit faster than he was. So by the time he had gotten, you know, to the bottom end of the rampart, I was able to get back up to where he started and snatch the item. <laughs> up to me. Isn't and that called kiting? Did you discover kiting? Yes, I did. My God, I discovered kiting in 1988. That's awesome. <laughs> so, um, and I love, I love the fact, yeah, and I had gargoyle aggro. And I, <laughs> nice. I love the fact that the game engine was complex enough that it allowed you to solve certain problems in ways that were maybe not anticipated, or at least in more than one way. And another thing, another example of that in the same game, at the top of Lord British's castle, and by the way, Lord British's castle in Ultima V is just such a great piece of design. This, it was huge. It was five stories tall, and it had all these little nooks and crannies and basements and little things. You know, um, at the very, very top was this room in which Lord British had a special item that you had to get, but it was locked by a magical door, and magical doors are very hard to unlock. You need a special kind of key, which is hard to obtain. But that's not the only way you can do it. Another way you can do it is there are some cannons uh, on the ramparts. So if you push one of those cannons up to the door and fire the cannon, it blows the door <laughs> open. No way! Yeah. So it was a little, almost not quite a physics engine, but it was kind of moving in that direction. And, and he went further with that in Ultima 6 and 7 with every object having a unique weight. And you could take flour and you could make the flour into grain and you could put the grain into an oven and it becomes bread and... And so there, a lot of this kind of living world stuff and, 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 and even a kind of physics engine and um, that kind of complexity, I think, was, was being created by Garriott in Ultima's uh, 5 through 7 at a time when really no one else that I'm aware of was even coming close right. to that. 
so in another thing that the other two things I'm wondering about, uh, didn't Ultima seven, wasn't it split into like part one and part two and a serpent isle expansion or. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I actually don't know exactly how it breaks down. I think okay. there's Ultima seven and then there's Ultima seven part two. And then each one of those had an expansion. I think there was, I don't know if serpent isle, I think there was Ultima seven and then serpent isle. And then there was Ultima seven part two and then the silver seed. I think that's how it breaks down, but don't hold me to that because I'm not sure. But yeah, there were a lot of expansions. And, and that was kind of new, right? Like I think these days of how like downloadable content works and, this this mm-hmm. this line between there's there's no longer just a sequel like they dribble out new content but right, that that almost right. seems like an antecedent to the way we see games done today it's sort of yes, piecemeal yes. under the same title yeah that's an interesting point that 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 it's instead of just being the one game kind of defined unto itself that they kind of kept on adding new bits under that name I will say there's an even earlier antecedent to that the the um, the earliest game expansion that I'm aware of. Uh, comes from the old Temple of Apshai games. Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I know of them. I didn't play them. Yeah. yeah. So Temple of Apshai were this kind of sort of the early primitive, you know, dungeon crawl type games. Right. The kind of games that Ultima kind of innovated beyond. But what they also they also had actual full on retail expansions. Temple of Apshai had two expansions. One was Upper Reaches of Apshai, and one was uh, The Curse of Ra. And they were, according to Hoyle expansions, you could not play them if you didn't already own the original game and ah. were sold separately in a box and the right. whole deal. So um, that's a, a little uh, tidbit. And, and it, that's, that's from 83, I think, that those came out of 83. So we won't blame Ultima then for that. Uh, so then finally, though, Ultima, of course, Ultima Online was the first basically graphical MMO. It, it sort of took the genre. It sort of it was the first evolution from MUDs to what we know today as MMOs. Isn't that weren't, weren't there a couple of other kind of one, proto ones like Meridian 59 or that early Neverwinter Nights? In, in Neverwinter well, that's Nights. what I'm wondering about. Is is uh, But weren't those more like... Like, did those work like Ultima Online does? Like, didn't Ultima Online sort of set that Deku model? Maybe um, not. Like, I, I could be wrong. Yeah, th- th- this is actually an area that I don't know that much about. I, I, I believe, I mean, there were definitely earlier games that were along those lines, like, like as I said, Neverwinter Nights and Meridian 59. Whether they were true MMOs or not, and how you define that is how many population, how many people on a server, you know, things like that, I don't know. Uh, I would think it's safe to say Ultima Online was certainly the first really mainstream one, the first really big one. Um, as far as whether it's a Deku, that's actually a good question. I don't know. I never played Ultima Online. Um, I don't think its gameplay model is that similar to EverQuest, so it might it might not have qualified as a Deku. Um, well, what I'm curious about then, why didn't as an Ultima fan, how come you never played Ultima Online? Yeah, again, I mean, the main reason was I just didn't have a computer at the time that could okay. play it. Right. Um, I was I was my my entire interest in the Ultima series was completely curtailed by the lack of a computer on which to play them after about 1988. Right. And um, by the time I had a good PC, it was 1998, and the Ultima series was almost gone. There was Ultima 9, which, again, my computer wasn't good enough to play, because <laughs> one of the interesting things people forget about the Ultima is they think, oh, they're these old RPGs, and they have these great stories. They were system hogs. They were, from, from the moment <laughs> the moment when they started to come out on the PC, they required bleeding-edge systems to play. And Origin always did that. Same thing with Wing Commander, right? Origin always just made you have the, the best possible machine. And people, I'm sure lots of people upgraded their systems just so they could play Ultima 7 or so they could play Wing Commander. Um, and Ultima Online, I mean, Ultima 9, I'm sorry, was in keeping with that tradition, too, because Ultima 9 was, when it came out in 1999, uh, very few people actually had a computer that could run it halfway decently. Now, now, what do you know about what people's options are these days for playing the original Ultimas? Uh like, are they? Can you get them from abandonware sites? Are there compilations? Oh, and here's um, the question: Can you play on an iPhone? 
Ooh, that would be interesting, yeah. Um, I'm not aware of any iPhone apps that have Ultimas, but uh, if I may make a little plug, there's a pretty cool iPhone app called The Quest, um, which is kind of a an old-school RPG. It kind of looks more like a Might and Magic or even a Daggerfall. Or not a Daggerfall, more like an Elder Scrolls Arena. Mm-hmm. But that's it's a, it's a full-on RPG. It's 50 hours of gameplay. The whole deal it costs 6 bucks or whatever. Um, so that's a pretty cool iPhone app for RPG fans. But my cur- my understanding about the current availability of Ultima is um, I know Ultima 4 was released as freeware years ago. Um, so that, if you can track it down, you have legal right to play that. Um, I'm not sure where you can find it. It used to be hosted on various Ultima fan sites. Um, you know, uh, the other Ultimas, I, you know, I think EA still holds the rights to them, so it's kind of legally you're, you're on your own. But um, as far as abandonware sites, I mean... Yeah, I, I don't really know what's current. Right. I guess Home, 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 The Underdogs got shut down. Generally, the way to play them, the earlier ones, you want to play them emulated, I think. Um, like, for instance, Ultima 3, I think, is best played on a Commodore 64 because on the PC at that time, there was no music and it had that crappy CG, CGA graphics with the pink and the purple. <laughs> um, whereas the C64 version had this great musical score and it had 16-color graphics. So that would be the version that I would recommend playing that. And there are plenty of C64 emulators like Vice and, and whatnot. Um... The later Ultimas, I believe Ultima 7 is kind of a special case. It had that weird... Wasn't there that weird thing in the early 90s where you had to do some kind of weird memory manager thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and and, and they, So I don't think it's a game that runs well in DOSBox. So there's actually a, a whole program called Exult, which is a dedicated um, uh, Ultima 7 emulator, and they've been working on that for years. Uh, and and I, you probably just Google Exult. I think it's a source SourceForge uh, URL of some kind. Um and I don't know where that is now or how far they've taken it, but uh, that's the way to go if you want to play Ultima 7. Ultima's, Ultima 6 is playable in DOSBox, as are the Ultima spin-offs, uh, Savage Empire and Martian Dreams. And now, you, you, have you recently played the Ultimas? Like, are these games that you revisit, or for you, are they better off sort of left when you were younger as, as no, no, I've definitely re- revisited them. Um, in 1998, when I when I first kind of got back into PC gaming, having, having bought my first kind of modern PC, one of the first things I did was I, I did a little bit of retro gaming, and um, I replayed Ultima 3 all the way through. I, I busted out the graph paper, I made the maps, I did the whole thing. Um, and I had a lot of fun doing it. It's still, even though, you know, certain aspects of the design are clearly dated. I mean, what, what he would do is he would gate the player in certain ways. He would say, well, you can't go past here until you have a certain object or a certain mark on your character that will allow you to go through fire. Or you can't go here because the monsters are too high level, so you have to kind of keep grinding gold, and then you pay the gold to get your stats up. So there were certain rather crude gates to progress that you can see in the design of Ultimate 3, which, which nowadays we wouldn't really tolerate. It required a lot of killing random monsters and things. But even there, God, even there, Garriott was very, very clever, I have to say. Like, in Ultimate 3, you, you, there, were, there were little hidden places in the towns where you could go and you could find lots and lots of treasure chests, but you might have to bribe your way past a guard or something in order to get to them. But, but if you did that, you'd have all the money you needed. Um, you know, there, and, 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 there were always, He's always kind of thinking about it, just, just interesting ways to allow you to make progress than the more obvious way of just killing lots of monsters. Um and he was also very good at ramping up the transportation as he went. You start out on foot, and then you get a horse, and you get a boat, and you get a uh, you use the moon gates, or you get a balloon, or you get teleportation spells. So it became less and less of a hassle to kind of walk back and forth across the continent. Um, but uh, so '98 was the last time you played one. No, I played. I've played some Ultima Seven and Ultima Six uh, via DOSBox and via the Exalt thing in more recent years, and I played Ultima Five. Um, uh, actually, about five years ago, I played Ultima 5 all the way through. 
which I had never done before. I actually wasn't able to complete it when I first played it as a kid. It was too hard. And are these the, are these epic, you know, fifty hour experiences? Or are they more like twenty hour kind of things? Like, what sort of investment is it? Does it require? Yeah, yeah. I think it depends. I think Ultima's two and three and one you could probably win in under twenty hours. Right. Ultima's four, five are bigger. Those probably take more like thirty to fifty hours. Um, six and seven, I, I don't know because I haven't played them all the way through, but I assume that they're pretty big time investments as well. Well, Gordo, this has been awesome. I I. I know nothing, like, it was great hearing about these games. I've dabbled with them, but uh, I was never back then a hardcore RPGer. Uh, I think I was more into strategy games. Uh, so I really appreciate you explaining what made them special. Uh, now, are you ready for an absolutely random question that has nothing to do with Ultima? Uh, sure. Okay, this is a random question of the week. We have these every week. Uh, what you're what you are answering this question for, Gordo, is a chance to win a downloadable code for a game called Gyromancer on, on the Xbox 360, which you don't have. I don't know. <laughs> so you could gift it if you were to win. Uh, do you know what Gyromancer is, by the way? Um, I know that. Uh, actually, um, I I work at uh, Yahoo Games, and we ran it as, as one of the, the downloadable games. Ah, okay. Holiday Guide. But apart from the fact that it's a downloadable game that my boss recommends, I actually don't. <laughs> so it's it's Bejeweled Twist with an RPG built around it, it but not a regular RPG. It's a it's a JRPG built around it. Is it actually a PopCap game? Yes, it's it's PopCap and Square Enix collaborated on it. Ah, uh, right, right, right. I read about that. Yeah. So you would have to get an Xbox 360. But this is the random question I'm going to ask you. It will also be posted in everything else. Cordo, your name goes into the drawing. Everybody who answers this question in the thread using the secret code word is also qualified to win. So here's the question. Which member of the Fellowship of the Ring would make the best roommate? Um, you know, probably uh, probably Pippin because he seems like kind of, kind of a good guy to party with. Pippin? <laughs> First of all, I, you know, I love the Lord of the Rings, but I still, to this day, for the life of me, can't distinguish between Pippin and Mary. No, oh, oh, yeah, I just picked one. I mean, I can't. <laughs> you just picked a random but, Hobbit. But, but you know, I just imagine someone saying, you know, oh, <laughs> breakfast and, and, and oh, let's go get drunk. I think, I think it'd be fun. Either one of them, really. But I just chose Pippin. Um, okay, I'd never get anything done if I roomed with them, though. Uh, I, I would choose Gandalf because I would think he would be gone a lot, and that's what I. <laughs> roommate. That's that's a good point. Uh, all right, so if you have an answer for this, which member of the Fellowship of the Ring would make the best roommate, post it to everything else, and make sure you use the word rent in your post. Uh, as long as that word appears in your post, you'll go into the drawing, and you could win a downloadable code for Gyromancer. Uh, next week, holy cats, who's on next week? I have no idea. Oh, my God, hold on. Let me look up the little file. Uh... By the way, Gordo, you got very lucky. There's like a year-long waiting list for uh, people on this show. So uh, this was not uh, – so you, you got in early. So next week we have Ephraim talking about Dark Age of Camelot. Um, did, did you play Dark Age of Camelot or you're just too into World of Warcraft? Um, yeah, I, I actually – I didn't. I didn't I, I didn't really play any MMO much until World of Warcraft. I played a little bit of City of Heroes. But very cool. is, your, is your guild raiding later tonight? No, you're not going to catch me. <laughs> Well, Gordo, thank you so much. Uh, everyone join us next week, and remember to uh, post which Fellowship of the Ring member would make the best roommate and, and everything else, and we'll see you here next week. 
Thanks, Tom.